Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Doug Kazarian is host of ESPN's first ever daily betting show, The Daily Wager. In this episode, Doug takes us through the legal and societal evolution of sports betting and how a subject many regarded as unseemly a decade ago now finds a comfortable home on ESPN. Doug also describes his own evolution growing up in L.A. as the youngest of five brothers, attending Harvard-Westlake, Phillips Exeter, and Brown, followed by a start in broadcasting that he equates to, quote, the minor leagues, end quote. Beginning in small markets in Iowa and Missouri, Doug eventually made his way to Las Vegas, where he became familiarized with a legal sports betting framework and community. After finally being called up to ESPN in 2012, and as national sports gambling restrictions began to relax, Doug became the ideal person to host the network's first-ever program devoted to sports betting. Doug Kazarian on family, journalism, and waging his future on a lifelong passion for sports. This is The Supporting Cast. supporting cast good to be with you very flattered to receive the email uh there's a lot of people who've gone through the uh hallways of harvard school and harvard westlake and over the years so it'd be i was quite flattered to be asked well thank you for for doing it and uh, you know we've been starting each episode with kind of a here and now kind of question and where are you currently and how are you doing today so I'm in Las Vegas, but I, I won't be tonight. I'll be, I'm going up to Arizona or across to Arizona, depending on the geography for the Super Bowl week. And obviously wow. in the sports world, it's such a big week. And so I'm headed over there and then there's a bunch of stuff going on this week, but I've been in Las Vegas. I've lived in Las Vegas a total of 10 years. And so current stint, if you will, has been two and a half. And I previously had lived here seven years throughout my career. So I came back ultimately and my career sort of pivoting and things like that has since come back because of sports betting and the legalization expansion throughout the U.S. And right. who knew that betting on sports would be sort of the uh, the thing that catapulted my career. Yeah. So you host a, a daily show called The Daily Wager for ESPN. And so I imagine this week, a lot of focus is on the Super Bowl, what the spread is, all the different things that people can kind of bet on for that game. Is that right? Yeah. So Super Bowl is like usually the one week where you could always talk about betting. That was the one yeah. thing because going back to the eighties and since then proposition bets is what became such a popular discussion topic. So it was the one week where almost like the stigma wasn't there for all these years in the last few decades, but now that it's legal in so many States and it's still just growing and becoming a larger part of, how the consumption of football and all sports, it's now not such a stigma. So ironically, this we're doing what we always do every day with, on the show is talk about betting on sports, but this is the week where it's really embraced. And the proposition bets, in addition to the game, has become such a, a discussion topic and a fun part of conversation throughout the week because those prop bets really just took off going back to Refrigerator Perry in the 80s 
when he scored a touchdown, the Bears blow out of the Patriots. From there, it took on a life of its own. And then over the years, I mean, you have you have simple stuff like coin toss, and then every year there's yeah. you know passing yards of quarterbacks. But every year there's a, one odds maker trying to outthink the other one. And you get bet on the over under of the Scrabble score of the first scoring touchdown and of the guy's last name and things like that, and have a lot of fun with it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a big topic because of the game and the significance of it, but just with the betting and what role it plays and everyone sort of kind of opens up to learning about certain uh, betting aspects of the game. Yeah. Prop bets being kind of the length of the national anthem is right. one, right? That people will do, right? There's funny things that aren't even related directly to the game, but sort of surround the game. Yeah. The Gatorade color and things along right, those Gatorade lines. color that gets dumped on the head coach, right? Well, yeah. And for so many years, it was a blowout. The, the games were such a blowout and I'm talking eighties and nineties. There were a lot of blowouts. Now, since then, the last handful of years, we've had great games for the most part, and it hasn't needed to be a crutch, if you will, of the part of the coverage. But there's always fascinating topics, and in this growing expansion, and, and you know, companies like ESPN are trying to figure out the right sort of Venn diagram of the consumer uh, of, of a game, you know, Sports Center and things like that. How much do they really care about betting? Because you know, a show like Daily Wager is going to have all betting talk. And it's very simple. It's we're asking people to come to our program. But the question is for these networks, how much of the everyday watchers care about betting? So programs like SportsCenter or the game broadcast that is in Arizona, which is a legal state, how much of betting do we put in in the, in the content? Yeah, there's so much. I mean, I read a lot of sports talk. I listen to people like Bill Simmons and Cousin Sal and, and read people who, who write about sports betting. But when you watch the halftime show, on you know Fox or CBS of an NFL game, they don't talk about betting at all, right? So it's it's you're right. It's how do you mix in some of this now that it's a little bit more uh, acceptable to talk about these things? Yeah, and that's the the long term curiosity is what is betting content going to look like as we move forward? I mean, is it going to be sort of like the referee, uh, ex referee who comes in and explains a rule when there's a challenge going on during an NFL game or halftime, like you said? Do we need an analytics guy too? some of the, go, yeah. the the decisions to go for two. And so you don't want to saturate the marketplace because there's always going to like the second screen experience, whether it be a bet cast or whatever, that is that's self-explanatory. That's easy. Like daily wager, like obviously that's easy, but it's the regular broad, like you said, the game broadcast, halftime, things along those lines. How much do we need to address it? And, and I think there's an analytics conversation too. So in addition to the yeah. rules expert, do you need to have a betting expert on the broadcast and things along those lines? That's, I think, a long-term decision to be made and not necessarily like this week. The analytics question is a, an interesting one because if you look back at the last, say, 20 years or so, you have Moneyball that comes out in 2003. You have the Sloan Conference that starts, I think, in the mid-2000s. You have the, the movie Moneyball that comes out, I think, in 2011. And so analytics and sports starts to kind of become in vogue where does sort of the betting conversation kind of parallel the analytics conversation? Because right now it does feel like they're kind of intermixed. How did betting become, you know, acceptable? I remember growing up with Pete Rose, you know, and Pete Rose being shunned from the Hall of Fame because he did this terrible thing. And obviously we can't have players involved in betting. And that's a question I want to get to too. But can you take us through a little bit of the last 20 years of how this all evolved? The real fulcrum and the turning point was the Supreme Court ruling. So mm. the reason that there was that stigma and everything is because it was 
against federal law. I mean, it's simple as that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually would always defend these leagues. People are like, oh, you know, 90% of viewers are watching the NFL because of betting and things like that. It's like, it's against the law. Like, I don't know what you expect yeah. these leagues to do. And the only difference was Nevada had been grandfathered in. So there was a ruling, PASPA, that basically banned states from proceeding for legalized sports betting. And then they, Governor Christie in New Jersey challenged it. And then he won with the Supreme Court ruling, I want to say five years ago almost. After that, every state was allowed to proceed as they so choose. Jersey was the first. They had all the wheels in motion already. So when the ruling flipped from the Supreme Court ruling, it was huge. I think that's when leagues and companies and networks opened their minds about it. And they said, all right, this is no longer federally banned. Obviously, there's a lot of money at stake. How can we incorporate this and profit? Let's be fair but also do it in a tasteful way and all of those things. And I give the leagues a lot of credit because for so long, they I wouldn't say ignored it, but they're like, well, it's against the law. Why would we even have a research right. team to check in this out? Or why would we care, right? It was not allowed at all and it wasn't even to be considered. And then they just sort of embraced it. And I also think there was a little bit of the conversation change from a Vegas perspective. I mean, even, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, there was all those Vegas commercials that had what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and they played <laughs> right. the boshery, the forbidden stuff. And then they pivoted with, so maybe the golden Knights was sort of the, the starting point and right. The of, hockey team. Yeah. And I think I always would go on radio in Vegas and be like, look, you can't have it both ways. You can't market yourself as this debauchery. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and then get offended when people don't take you as seriously as a city. So when right. the golden Knights did it and they had gambling, obviously in Vegas or, the T-Mobile arena, people would be in the stands betting on games and it was fine. And so that I think probably started it. Vegas was, I want to say legitimized, but just started to be viewed differently than what it was before. And then the Raiders came, but in between those two was legalization or at least removal of the federal ban of sports betting. It was gradual for sure, but I think it's just a sort of a loosening sort of society or whatever you want to... The, the, just the, the discussion, the whispers became a little bit louder on, on broadcasts and things along those lines, and then just became a little bit more acceptable. And then obviously everything accelerated with the Supreme Court ruling. So so what's the risk? I mean, obviously this is something that's now so acceptable. Is there any worry that there's going to be a time when a player is caught or a referee is caught in some sort of scandal because this is becoming so ubiquitous? Is that inevitable that at some point something's going to happen? I'm of the opinion that yeah. there is going to be funny business in every industry. There's going to yeah. be shady stuff forever. And legalization is not going to create more issues. For example, you mentioned a referee. The Tim Donaghy scandal happened with bookies and underground world. It didn't happen yeah. over the counter. I mean, going back to something when I was in high school in the 90s, there was an Arizona State scandal that happened. And by halftime, the coach yelled at his players, he was like, guys, what's going on? There's like point shaving accusations. Because what had happened is there was funny business going on and some students were in Vegas and it was irregular customers and they made bets over the counter. One bookmaker called another guy down the street, goes, hey, we just received some funny bets against Arizona State. You guys seeing anything? Yeah, we had the same stuff happen here. And they figured out, called the authorities, NCAA figured out. That, and so by halftime of the yeah. game, they had already got to the bottom of it. So anything that's over the counter or more transparent, that's just going to exist. Nothing changed 
in terms of the potential for underground unethical behavior. But I'll, I'll also say this, like, I'm pretty confident there was points shaved or some funny business that happened in a college basketball or college football game this year. Just like there was probably insider trading in Wall Street at some point in the last year. Right. It doesn't mean you shut down the stock market. You just have more authorities and more regulation and, and punishment. I think getting everything above board when there is more technology that you can apply to tracking stuff. Like I'm actually, I got a tip this morning and I'm pounding the pavement working on a something that this could be a really big sort of scandal or whatever, or it could be nothing, but it's all because a regulated operator, they're able to track all the plays and they're able to do anything right. and think about, and then they can figure out and profile a player and figure out how this happened. And it was a, basically something that was a hundred to one parlay or whatever that they not think it was above board. Let's put it that way. I, again, I got to get to the bottom, but anything that like reeks of impropriety or whatever, you can use technology and everything's account-based betting and things along those lines. Usually the shady stuff happens with bookies and underground stuff. I think, you know, my colleague at ESPN worked on a story for that. There was a UFC fight that may have been fixed or things like things like that. It got out in the open because of all this. So I'm of the belief, and maybe I'm naive, but I really, the more you legalize it, the more you get it above board, the less likely it is to have any. Now, to your point, it's becoming more of our culture. So, you know, a kid on some team might be more aware of betting and because it's on commercials now and things along the lines, there is that component. But I'm also of the belief that a colleague Scott Van Pelt always says, is, let people be adults. Like it's weird to ban this and like not everything else. And I think anything in excess is bad. I mean, we have shopaholics, right? We have obesity issues and that, whatever it may be. So anything in excess, and there's always going to be people who have addiction to whatever. So I think whatever the authorities and whatever the people say about education and on these fronts and all that, yeah, I'm all for, but I don't think one thing should be banned and everything else should not. The, some of the same arguments were made in the last 10 years about marijuana legalization as well, right? Better for it to be legal and regulated than right. sort of unregulated. And, and that brings the Wild West. Yeah. Again, I'm not an expert in this stuff. And so in Europe, it's sort of an entertainment component. It's, it's much part of their culture in the day to day. You know, it's like splitting a bucket of wings or a bucket of beers with a friend watching a game. It's like, let's split a parlay. And it's part of the, that interaction. But there are others and I'm friends with them. They want to kind of view that as a stock market. I mean, there's no different, right? It's like the scene in Trading Places when Eddie Murphy says, sounds to me like you guys are a couple of bookies. And there is an element of, you know, I have a good friends who are professional bettors out here and I talk to them and they're one guy's a former trader on the Merck. And it's just that concept where you're buying and selling. Oh, I bought some at this, sold some at that. And, you know, if you do sort of arbitraging and especially in the Super Bowl where there's such variance with all the proposition bets, there are people who just treat it like arbitrage and commodities you know i always tell the story like i have a buddy who was a pro better and he asked me just we were you know catching up one day it's a while ago and he said is this robinson cano any good i'm like well it's robinson cano and he plays for the yankees and he's yes he's pretty good i think he's a batting champion or something and because he was betting on the world baseball classic and he was moving prop bets and he was betting like so i asked him like how much money do you have on this cano He's like probably like 20,000 on some side, but then he had played back the other side. And he was just arbitraging it. So here's a guy who doesn't even know anything about baseball or didn't even know who the guy was, but he's literally just moving numbers and, and trading 
Cano proposition of over under hits in the World Baseball Classic or whatever the, the prop bet was, and he couldn't even tell you who the guy what the guy is, but he's just like, look, it's. And then he said, I would bet Japanese canoeing if I can make money off of it. And then that's what it comes down to. It's just the trading commodities a lot of times. Right. And that gets to the analytics conversation. These are analysts that are crunching numbers and looking for value, right? And, and the sports almost become secondary to it. Well, right. And then so coming back to the Super Bowl props, I mean, there'll be a lot of guys who bet a certain guy. Like, let's say Miles Sanders, the running back for the Eagles. He's 25 to 1. Like, do you think there's a better than 4% chance he can win the MVP. It's 25 to one. Just so stuff like that is their value. You can bet on Patrick Mahomes' passing yards. And and it's all about the math of what these prices and all the prop bets make. Like you and I were just talking a little bit ago about the national anthem stuff. We have fun and those are fine. And that's sort of entertainment. And it's just another way to sort of consume the product. But if they're treating it like a stock exchange or just any sort of an exchange, there's something to be said about that. So again, whatever policies are in place or regulation for the stock market, you can almost think along those lines that maybe these companies and operators and networks should be operating such. I mean, when we talk on Daily Wager and we discuss games and things along those lines, there is a little bit of it like some of the stock market content during the day, whether it be MSNBC and all the others, in terms of how to approach viewing some of these point spreads or futures market championship odds, things along those lines. Because we, I mean, we'll talk about it, like you put together a portfolio sometimes, whether it be the MVP, like for example, Nikola Jokic is the favorite and he's about even money or a little less than even money right now. But let's say I have him at eight to one from earlier in the season, but I also have Joel Embiid at six to one and whatever it is, Luka Doncic at three to one or whatever it is, I'm building a portfolio and depending on how much I have on each guy, my, my positions and my portfolio, and in this case, only one can win. But in a stock portfolio, obviously, all stocks can go up or down. But in this case, there's different payouts. I mean, it's a portfolio of options, really, in, in a lot of ways. So it's the same sort of concept. There's a lot of math involved if you want to that rather than just saying, hey, I'm going to bet 10 bucks on Steph Curry to hit 10 threes, break a record or whatever it is, and it's 50 to one or whatever it is, right? There's that fun stuff that people love. And so there's a little something for everyone in that. Do you ever bet with your heart? Well, I certainly have over the years. Uh, yeah. It's funny. Probably I've seen more people I know do the, the reverse, like the emotional hedge, right? Uh, interesting, right? Because you're you're happy either way, right? If your right. team you love loses, <laughs> you've won some cash, right? Is right. that kind of the calculus? Yeah, no, I've seen that. But one thing that I did a long time ago when I was working here in Las Vegas for the local affiliate, and then I... I basically was covering the Rebels. The running Rebels were in the Sweet 16 in 2007, and I was traveling with them. And I stood to make a bunch of money with overtime pay, overtime pay and everything if they kept winning. So I actually bet against them, like a small bet, to like basically just make money one way or another. Because back then, you know, you're like underpaid, overworked stuff. I was like, if they keep going, then I'm going to make a bunch of money because I have to travel overtime, live shots for every morning show, whatever it is. So... In a more traditional sense, we saw this in the Dodgers World Series with the Astros. The Dodgers hosted games six and seven. The Astros were up three games to two. All these ticket brokers in L.A. stood to make so much money if the World Series went to a seventh game in L.A., just the, the, the value of that ticket. So they all bet on the Astros. I shouldn't say all, but there were a lot of brokers who had sizable bets here in Las Vegas. Like This was pre-legalization, so they drove to Vegas, flew to Vegas and bet yeah. on the Astros in game six, 
just to secure some profit, whatever amount they needed to do. And then the Dodgers won game six, beat Verlander. So it went to game seven. So they lost the game six bet, but they won all, you know, the profits of games, you know, the seven, because the, the pricing was just off the charts, the upsell value. And that goes back to sort of the hedging and derivative traders and Wall Street and things like that. You can you can sort of use this market against other industries or whatever and you know, guarantee profit or whatever you want to call it. So so now I want to get back to you. So you grew up in LA and you were the youngest of five brothers before getting to Harvard Wesseck. Is that right? Yeah, really crazy. So it's a pretty pretty unique background in that regard. All, all had graduated Harvard school prior to the merger. So I went to Harvard school, technically seventh and eighth grade, and then yep. we merged going into my ninth grade year. I guess before we get to Harvard, what's it like being the youngest of five brothers? <laughs> it's my most identifiable trait, I would say. Um, Why is that? I, I think all of our life experiences shape us. That goes without saying. But since I can remember, I was always the youngest of five, right? It was just, and then when you go to high school at Harvard Westlake, then you know half the teachers all know your brothers or whatever it may be. You're not an individual; you're just one of five. Stuff was just sort of decisions were just made. Like by the time I came around, my parents knew which little league to go to, or knew you know, it was just you just knew what to do. And I knew I was probably going to go to Harvard Westlake, and you know all that stuff when I was in fourth grade, third grade. I, when I started even remotely thinking about my path, I just kind of knew what was going to happen. And then, I, then over time, you start to learn and become your own individual. And we all are very different in a lot of ways. And then we're all very similar in a lot of ways. And I obviously created my own path. But it definitely just follows you because I rarely went to things by myself. I was always like, a, you know, having to sit in the backseat of carpool with my mom while we went and pick up my brother or whatever it may be. Or we were at the school at the same time. And I think anybody who had a sibling that was older or younger, who was in high school at the same time or at, you know, whatever school, you're just connected. And then I shared a room with my brother too, the next closest up with bunk beds uh, when we were younger and stuff. So it's always been just a big active household. And that's why it sort of shaped me. And then what about Harvard Westlake? I mean, you had heard about the school, obviously from your brothers. Talk a little bit about your experience and then whether there were people there, teachers, coaches that were influential to you. So I was the youngest guy in my class. I think there's one girl who's uh, a week or two younger. So I was very young for my class and undersized, as they say. Uh, so I was a late bloomer. So that affected sports a little bit. So I was always into sports, three sports, all that growing up. And I was the only one who ultimately chose water polo. And how I found water polo was because of the PE coaches back in seventh grade and eighth grade. You'd rotate and a lot of the varsity coaches would coach PE during the day. And so Rich Corso was a legendary water polo coach. He was my PE coach and he sort of recruited me in that regard. And it took because I had grown up swimming and we had a swimming pool growing up. So with my size, probably not made for football, not that water polo isn't contact sport, but it was better. It made sense to me. And then I tried it and I loved it. It's hard. And all the guys who played water polo will tell you this. It's just hard to look back at my high school experience and not think about water polo in that because it was year round essentially and especially in the summers and it was just such a big part of my day-to-day -day existence with morning workouts before school and then afterwards and obviously in the season now i played other sports basketball and baseball as well you know from seventh grade on but there was such i mean your formative years or your high school years are so impactful and you 
create habits and things along those lines. So when you're with the one coach on so often, I used to joke though, it's like the firm, the movie, the firm and the book, the firm by Grisham, because once you get in, you can't get out. It's like you're committed and there's such a promised <laughs> payoff of your senior year. And for me, who was just waiting to grow, like I was just like, I, you're grinding and you're obviously enjoying the ride to a certain extent, but there was a payoff at the end that you just would hope would eventually come. And for me, I didn't grow until really after my senior season. That was a big part. And then the other big part about high school was also the student newspaper because my brothers all worked on the newspaper, but like, I really liked it. And I worked, I ended up being a stringer for the LA daily news and a stringer is just like a little mini cub reporter basically. So I covered high school sports, the, the, the Valley edition, of the daily news tried to sell copies and you sell copies by writing about students putting their last name in the papers. So I covered games, whether it be high school football to girls volleyball, to a couple of basketball things I did. And then I worked the agate page, which is the page in the newspaper that has all the box scores. And then there's some summaries and things like that. So I would go to the offices in, in Woodland Hills and take calls and work the desk. So I was pretty into high school sports and then covering sports and writing about sports. And so I kind of figured out that that's what I wanted to do long term because I was so passionate about sports. But you know, I was writing for the, the foyer flyers, they called in seventh and eighth grade. And then we had our first newspaper in the middle, the, after the merger in the ninth of the lower school campus, the Chronicle was the upper class one. And so I was involved in student newspaper from seventh through 12th grade, and then also a paid stringer at the Daily News. So Kathy Newmeyer was a huge influence and she had some serious credentials working in the media. And I yeah. learned so many good things, the basics of writing, right? Early on, the who, what, where, when, and why, when you're covering this, uh, just a regular event. But then also, like, I had a column my senior year, a sports column, and she was really impactful and really generous with her insight and expertise to all of us, not just me. But when you do the layouts, sometimes I had to stay till 2 and 3 a.m. and just grinding and learning how newspapers are done, the deadlines and everything. This is pre-internet and all that. You just form, like, great habits for down the road. And I've encountered a lot, obviously my writing and everything's become more polished over the years, but at the baseline of that, and then at the LA daily news, he has since moved to the times, but Eric Sonheimer was, you know, the epitome of high school sports and everything. He was the most identifiable person, but he still is. <laughs> yeah, no, he totally is. And back then the daily news had a bunch of people who, I mean, Mark Stein was there when I was there, Gary Washburn, who's now in Boston was there. I mean, so many people were there that I just would literally just, kind of hang around the newsroom and glean wisdom because they were full of it. And so definitely uh, Ms. Newmeyer, when I was a student working on the Chronicle, was very influential in that regard. So when you were in high school, were you thinking about betting at all when you were writing all these columns for Harvard Westlake and for the LA Daily News? Yeah. So my first bet was like third or fourth grade. I remember it was really? the Super Bowl. I'd seen my brother's wow. bet, five bucks, the pre previous Super Bowl. Well, it's funny because I saw one brother taunt the other one on about a Super Bowl win. So I was like, I want in on this. So I actually eagerly waited a full year until the next Super Bowl, not knowing that you could bet on other games between them. <laughs> so once my turn came around, I, I bet five bucks with my brother on the Super Bowl. But I was always into it. I was in fantasy leagues like in third grade on. So I was always reading that page with all the box scores and doing fantasy leagues. I had in seventh and eighth grade and Gretzky came to LA. I was in some hockey fantasy leagues with all my friends. And it was great. We had drafts and did all the baseball, rotisserie and all that. But yeah, no, once I got my hands into a point spread here and there, like I was into it. It was it was so exciting. And we definitely bet a few times. We bet with each other a little bit. 
it's funny. I mean, looking back, there are prop bets, but we didn't know that they were. But we each would pick like, I don't know, 10 guys to hit a home run. We would like go back and forth. And so like that day, we had 10 people. You know, we call it on the show right now, long ball, long shots. But in addition to the action, quote unquote, we had with our own fantasy teams, we would just pick, and I think we like bet a buck or whatever. So I'd have a list of 10 guys who I thought would go home, you know, hit a homer that day. And we would kind of draft each each day and we would bet against each other. Wow. And then point spreads. I know I bet the Super Bowl in like 11th grade, I think, with the buddies and things along those lines. So we were definitely around it. And this is back when, I'm not saying the the stigma was always there, but newspapers had the point spreads. And more and more, they started to do that. So after Harvard West, like you did one year at Exeter before going to Brown. What was the reasoning around that? And then tell me a bit about your Brown University experience. Yeah, I think it was one of the best things that I ever did. So when you have four older brothers, you get a lot of advice passed down and sometimes unsolicited. They all went back east to school. And so what's called as a postgraduate year, I sometimes call it a gap year because I think that's more um, commonly known. Yeah. Basically, for it's usually three different reasons or one of three different reasons people choose to do this. It's because you're young for your class and you just need another year to quote unquote mature before going to college. You need another year of academics, strengthen your transcript, or a third is for athletic reasons. I was the rare case where all three I needed to do. It was perfect. And so what happened is my college counselors in the college counseling office had come from the East Coast, either admissions from you know universities in the East Coast or just knew of it. My next brother up was a similar late November birthday. He actually was deferred a year, but he did take a year off before college. And all my brothers having gone to school back East, they interacted with students from the Northeast or whatever who had done a postgraduate year at one of the boarding schools. So it was brought to me, you know, it was proposed to me like, hey, you know, you would be a really good candidate for this. Again, I was telling, talking about earlier with athletics, you know, I grew three inches, I think my senior year of high school. Wow. Um, you know, I went to Phillips Exeter. I would say Exeter Andover have probably the most postgraduates. They're called PGs. So like they have about 50 to 55 when I did it. So I was one of 50 guys um, that was a postgraduate. Now, most played football or hockey and lacrosse, but it was something that I warmed up to. I was like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially because water polo was a fall sport. So I, when I started growing, it was like I was done basically at Harvard Westlake. And the coach at Exeter had coached the Junior Olympics at elite levels and things like that. So my so Corso knew him from back in the day through you know Junior Olympic circuits and things along those lines. So I was going to just further my athletics with like the right situation. And then the academics, it was another year of taking more APs and all all that stuff because it's not like I'm taking the same English class, right? I'm not repeating my senior at Harvard Westlake. I'm going somewhere where I'm furthering. So I took AP calculus and all this other stuff. And then just being a year on your own and demonstrating to colleges that, you know, you're capable of doing whatever it took to go the next step. And like I said, furthering academics and athletics. And it was just great for me. I, I needed a, another year, so to speak, before going to college. And it worked out well. Looking back, it was just like an awesome experience. I met some great people that I'm still friends with to this day, some awesome people. And it was a really cool thing to do for one for one year. I mean, I'm very appreciative of my Harvard Westlake experience by, you know, of course, but it was right for me. It's not yeah. right for everyone else necessarily, but it was right for me and it, and it worked, so to speak, in a lot of ways. And so then I went to Brown and Brown was amazing. Um, it was where I wanted to go. And 
when I had a recruiting visit and I looked at it and I had an older brother who went there. So I first looked at it when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old or so. It was just awesome. And the water polo team was good. We were top 20 uh, every year and it was fun and great, but also the curriculum and just everything about Brown I loved. I had friends to this day, still very close with. We travel, we take annual trips. I've been to all their wet, you know, in all their weddings, I believe. And I got to also pursue communications, if you will. So I was an econ major. Brown didn't have a former journalism or communications major, but I knew what I wanted to do the on-air thing. And I knew that like internships and all that stuff was the way to go. I mean, there's only so much you can learn about broadcasting from a textbook. Yeah. Now, if I had gone to, let's just say a prestigious journalism school like Syracuse or Missouri, I mean, they have networks and, you know, the students get reps. That would have been awesome. But for me, what I wanted to do, I just, I thought I could like still achieve a career in it without getting those reps from a student network at the time. Now I did some local Providence stuff like at a radio station and WBRU and things on that. And I wrote for the Brown Daily Herald a little bit as well. Mm. So I was able to cut my teeth to a certain extent, but it was after that it was internships and things along those lines. But I just, I needed obviously a degree. So I just stuck with economics, but I knew I wanted to do some form of broadcasting even when I got to Brown right away. And so you mentioned that it was really internships that were the steps that took you eventually to ESPN. Can you Take us through a little bit of the journey. A lot of people listening, maybe kids listening, would love to work for you at ESPN someday. Like, what was your journey there? Right. So some jobs had a certain path, right? To be a doctor, you got to like take the, you know, all the, the necessary courses. Go to med school. College, and then you got to go do your med <laughs> school and your tests and then yeah. residency and all that. In broadcasting, especially now, it's very different. Um, there's multitude of paths you can do to get wherever you need to be. And then people can become a TikTok star overnight and then all that. And then you'll, they'll put you on network TV and all that. I did it the, I would say the conventional way, I guess the more, the more common way, but it's not the only way, but I can only speak really to my way. The blueprint was sort of like becoming a professional baseball player. Out of college, you basically have to go to like class A or single A and then double A and then triple A. So I knew after college, I was going to have to go work in a small town. Now, I figured that out because I took I got internships. So I, had a, I was a research intern my first summer in L.A. And then I ended up interning in New York for a couple of legends in Manhattan, Warner Wolf and Gary Apple. Uh, Warner Wolf was like in Rocky Four. I mean, the guy is just everyone knows either in D.C. or New York knows who Warner Wolf is. He was a legend. And then Gary Apple still at, he's at SNY, you know, part of the Mets broadcast. And he was there and I was working at the local CBS affiliate in New York. And I learned so much from. Operating. I wanted to see what it was at the top. Now, I didn't get an internship at ESPN or anything, but I saw what the market number one market looked like, and it was awesome. So the mm. whole summer, I was like, if this is sort of the end game, that's all. I, I wanted to make sure that the end game was something I wanted to do, because sometimes it's like, oh, this is terrible or whatever. I don't want to do this. So I was fortunate that I got to that experience because I wanted to see what I was going to be working hard to, to achieve, to reach. And they were really great. And Cliff Gelb is a legendary producer. I mean, legend. He's still in the business and everything. And he was very encouraging. And he told me, he's like, well, you got to go to a small town. And the key is to get a demo reel, a resume, a resume tape. Much like in other industries, you have a resume piece of paper and an on-air capacity. You have a resume reel because that's what matters. And so I was able to figure it out. And I said, I'm going to go to a small town. I want to go to a college town. <laughs> So I kind of found some places on the map that were small towns and also college towns because I figured if I'm going to be doing it, might as well go to a college town with cool sports to cover. So I figured out a way and just you offer free internship and I got course credit. But Columbia, Missouri is where I went for my final summer 
going into my senior, my last senior year of college. And I worked for free. I ended up getting course credit. And then I also got a resume reel of sitting on a set and doing broadcasts. And obviously I was really green, but when you're trying to get your first job, you're not exactly competing against polished on-air broadcasters. You're competing against other college kids or whatever. And so I ended up after graduating, I ended up going back to that station in Missouri and was the number three sports guy for a football season. And that was great. And my first job, it was I was doing it. I was literally doing what I wanted to do. And again, going back to the baseball analogy, it was single A baseball, if you will. And then I got the job in Quad Cities, Iowa, which I had recognized from the movie Tommy Boy, because there was Davenport, Iowa, you know, the scene with the map and all that. So I was like, oh, this is great. So I sent I sent a tape for that job and I got it. And it was great. And I was the, I ended up being there four years. So that was equivalent, I guess, of double A, if you will. I could have marked, uh, we call it market hopping. So basically New York is one, LA's two, I think Houston's three or San Francisco's three, all the way to like Anchorage, Alaska, 250 or something like that. So I went from market 140 to market 90 and things were good in Iowa. I liked it. It was about two hours and change to Chicago. And it was, look, it was cold. I get it. I'm from LA in a small town and things like that. But there's a lot of positives too. And I think to be fair, you can sort of grow in that regard. So the old conventional ways to grow up in a small town, move to a big city. Well, when you go to Harvard Westlake and you grow up in LA and then you go to Brown and they, you're kind of in a bubble, you know, I, I think going to the small towns helped me to learn how the rest of the world operates and things along those lines. So it was good. And in your twenties, you, you know, you change so much and things like that. So it was good. After four years, I got the Vegas job and you have headhunters and you have, there's websites out there that help you get these jobs, right? There's postings for openings and things along those lines. I mean, there's a lot of jobs I applied for that I didn't get a, a nibble at all. So I'm summarizing like it's some straight, easy line, but there was some, you know, self-doubt, all that stuff. You wonder if you're good because all my friends are crushing it in wall street and making a bunch of money in the two thousands. And I'm like, what am I doing? So I got the Vegas job and it was awesome. It was closer to LA. Yeah. It was in a city that had like some big events with fights and NASCAR weekend and whatever, it was very event driven, but it was also like had the betting. So when I was working and when I'm doing these jobs, they're the local affiliates. So you're becoming either the weekend or the main sports guy at a local ABC or Fox or whatever. So I got the Vegas job and it was the, the I ended up getting the number one job or main, the main the main sports job for the ABC affiliate here and end up staying seven years. And throughout those years, it was great. Like I said, I mentioned covering the running rebels, the fights, Mayweather started to take off, UFC really started to take off as well. But then also betting was like sort of the local home team, if you will. And I really dug in and I I would interview odds makers. I would so Super Bowl week, yeah, it's part of the news for the local newscast. But like I went all in. I mean, I had a 30 minute weekend show every Sunday night. I would interview pro betters and you know, we would discuss breakdown. And by the last like year or so I was on air, I was doing a pick a night on the eleven o'clock news. Again, it was legal. So why not do it you know, a pick of the night or whatever? And then I also concurrently the last two or three years, I launched a radio show with some buddies from the local newspaper, the Las Vegas Review Journal, and we did a betting show. So we did a show for an hour on radio and we, we taped it at night because we had our regular day jobs and our deadlines to meet in my newscast. So I was done at 1135. So we did a midnight radio show for an hour and then we would upload it, put it on the internet like a podcast so people who had normal hours would wake up and listen to the, a betting show. And it took off and it did really well. And then the local ESPN affiliate bought it and brought us over and we went drive time 
And the best part about it, it's coincidentally the exact same time that Daily Wager is. So to come full circle, like wow. ESPN 1100 here, we did a drive time betting show right into game time, 3 to 4 p.m. Then I left and then I ultimately come back and I'm doing a TV show in that, that same time slot. So, yeah, I was here seven years and really, really learned a lot. I got a crash course. It was like boot camp for betting, just talking to odds makers. And then all my friends in the industry have since climbed their ladders, whether it be a friend who was, an, was a teller at one of the books, then he became a supervisor and then a manager. Now he's like an odds maker and executive. And so we all still are close and we all still um, help each other out with our profession. Like I, you know, whatever, I interview them for quotes or whatever it is. And I've just, there's so many people I've stayed in touch. So I moved to Vegas in 2005 and I left in 2012, but I really never left. So even in 12, so I got the ESPN job to go back to the baseball analogies. So you see, you know, I took that and then I went to ESPN as a conventional broadcaster. So I got in the sports center rotation. I got in the radio rotation. I hosted a variety of shows like NBA tonight was my first sort of big gig, if you will, filled in on baseball tonight, filled in on other shows. And it was great. But then when the legalization momentum started to happen, I had started helping out on the sports betting section of the ESPN.com and writing a little bit, helping out with the podcast. And that's when the bosses were like, hey, we're thinking about doing this and this with betting. And then the legalization happened and it was like, okay, this is awesome. And the talent office was like joking. They're, they were doing like a national search for betting personalities and things like that. And one pro better in town was actually at the lunch with one of our reps from the talent office. And he was talking me up or whatever, because he was a guy I knew forever. And she's like, either you pay these guys off or you actually, we coincidentally have the guy already on staff in our rotation of on-air anchors who's actually should be doing the show. And I'm like, no, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> but when I, when I got the job at ESPN, they knew about the betting. I mean, one, the one gentleman who was around the town office at the time, he said, he's like, we're probably going to want your, your betting background down the road. Cause there's so much overlap with fantasy and fantasy had already taken off by then. Cause they ask a lot of people come to ESPN. It's just, it's overwhelming the amount of sports you have to know. Because they know they're low. Let's say you're a sports guy in Dallas or whatever. So, you know, the Cowboys, you know, the NFL, right. But like to come in and then do highlights at 2 a.m. on like the Diamondbacks, a, a no hitter, you have to go live break it. I'm like, no, I do a betting show every day. I know every like I go three deep off the bench on every NBA team. Like we talk about all these teams all the time. I don't just know the running Rebels roster. And they're like, yeah, that's a good point. You know, so it actually I was already covering national sports because I was doing betting anyways. And during that time. You talked about kind of journalism and cutting your teeth and, and going to all these different markets as an on-air talent and personality was there someone either a you know someone you worked with on air or a producer of one of these shows that you feel like where you really grew where you feel like you really learned how to do this yeah i i think this goes back to being the youngest of five brothers i've just i was always conditioned to learn from others mostly positives like absorb positive and sometimes you see us you know whether it be the weather guy who has a who does something that you don't like or whatever you can learn what not to do sometimes but i really feel i was so conditioned and even in athletics because i was undersized back then and whatever i was always sort of seeing everything and seeing angles and absorbing from what others were doing and picking the brains of people who had been there longer and things along those lines. So at every stop, there was either another anchor or another person off air producer or something like that, where I was able to really just absorb. And, you know, we don't have a placebo effect. I don't know what, if I had taken a job elsewhere, what, who, who would have been there? 
I'm just very blessed that the, my on my path, there were numerous people along the way. I mean, we talked about Kathy Newmeyer and Eric Sondheimer. I mean, they have a foundation. I mean, I learned basics that I still think about. And then my favorite teacher at Harvard Westlake was uh, Dr. Archer, Robert Archer, who I, I've exchanged emails literally within the last few months. And I tell him, like, I still remember you taught it. You, know, you taught me how to write like clean and concise. Like that's obviously when you write on air, it's conversational, but it's it's tight. Everything's like 15 seconds, 20 seconds. There were like three rules you would always drill into my head and I still use them. Right. So the foundation was all because of those three people from a, you know, in my profession. And then along the way, like you said, on air, you know, my first boss was, I don't know, five, six, seven years older. And when I say boss, like the main sports guy, I learned a bunch from him and those people who were very generous with the time. And I, I ultimately paid it forward too. Like I took on interns when I got to Vegas and I was batting a thousand. I, my five interns all got on air jobs after college. I was like training them well after I got trained because I, I gave back in that regard. I tried to help out and I still do to this day with people who reach out and I try to schedule one, once a week, a conversation or someone with a student or someone who wants to maybe career pivot or something like that into broadcasting. But I, I really feel like all along the way and then just watching TV, right? I had grown up watching Stuart Scott, Dan Patrick, Keith Oberman, all those guys. Yeah. Like I was watching things much differently than regular viewers because I was in the profession. I was like, oh, that was interesting. Or I would do a highlight on a show called Highlight Express when I was at ESPN and I'd go home and watch how SportsCenter did the highlight and things like that. So I'd watch the same highlight delivered by someone else and, and learned and saw how they did it. Yeah, I think it's interesting you being the youngest of five brothers and you kind of taking that approach to each stop and going, you know, I have things to learn from others probably helped to keep your ego you know, in check, I guess, from that perspective so that you could really learn and grow. It's both. Right. So I had it. You know, you almost you have this resiliency and you have this this hunger and this drive that you literally it was crystallized with water polo because you have a coach who was literally coaching the U.S. Olympic team. <laughs> My so. yep. 10th, 11th, 12th. Yeah. So all those years. So there was always a better way to do something, even though it's like, coach, I'm you know 16 years old. I don't, I've never seen, you know, but we would always learn and there's always ways to improve, always ways to be better. So you had this critical component, but then there was the flip side where you had this sort of assumption that you're predestined or for a path that you want to do. So, you know, I, I never really had this sort of mindset that I could fail or these things wouldn't happen the way they're supposed to, so to speak. And this idea that you had spent this stint in Las Vegas mm -hmm. um, and kind of, again, cut your teeth on sort of the betting world, learned all the players. And then many years later, ESPN's looking for someone to be kind of host of the Daily Wager, host of sort of a daily betting show. And they go, we got the guy right here. He's, he's had the experience. He spent time in Vegas. He knows the players. It, it worked out great. And I was ESPN had changed their programming, so we had some layoffs with talent and things like that. And that was just because there weren't enough, as many slots to fill, right? And in terms of live sports centers and things like that, so other people took other jobs and, and things along those lines. And then I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Because again, we were doing 18 hours live at sports center. I think we went down to 12, I want to say. So there were just less, less slots to fill from a, a, a shift situation. But then I started pushing hard internally. I was like, hey, let's do a show, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, we do content pretty well at ESPN. Like, I think we know how to do a show. Let's figure out a betting show. And so I was able to find the right people to talk to and and really spearhead it in a lot of ways. And we were already, I mean, we as a company were already on board. We were just figuring out how we wanted to do it because we also have relationships with the leagues and maybe they weren't there yet. 
everyone had to get on the same page from a partnership angle, but also just what our content was, where we were. We have like video rights. I mean, there's so much that goes into this that's involved and deeply involved in the minutia of the legal contracts and all of that was part of it, but it was able to get the stars aligned and, and, and get that going. So before we go, there are a few get to know you questions as part okay. of supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles where you grew up. I know you live in Las Vegas now, but you're not too far from home and you come back for reunions. I know I saw you a few years ago at your reunion. LA is known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the first question, what is Doug Kazarian's favorite movie? So it's a little cliched, but it's a fact. So Caddyshack, I would say, is my favorite movie. I didn't even like watch it until college. And then I just loved it. And then since then, you know, I've seen it a million times, things like that. I would say I have a, I'm looking at my game room right now. And there's like six movie posters. I would say like the dark horse in there is probably like Ace Ventura Pet Detective. I think um, my first internship or I had an internship in high school, I shouldn't say my first one, right? Where I worked at ICM, talent agency. So I was able to get the scripts and I worked for a literary agent. So I actually got the Ace Ventura Pet Detective um, script. And I and I was, I was so appreciative because I saw how much like Jim Carrey ad-libbed and added to the script. And and that, and then the other one in there is Tommy Boy. So I already referenced this. We got two Tommy Boy references in the podcast. So <laughs> those three, I think, are my three favorite comedies for sure. And there's some football in Ace Ventura. You got Dan Marino. Right. There's sort of a Dolphins piece, Caddyshack, yeah. a little golf. So there's some sports in there, in there too. What's your favorite meal in LA? When you're back in LA, is there a restaurant you go to? Is there something you have? Yes. And I am glad we get to talk about this because I am sure it's like a playful joke I have with some people on Twitter. Like I am planting the flag hard on Carney's. So ah. Carney's is not super well known for anyone who doesn't live in LA. And but to, I I will fight to the death that I think it's the best burger there is. And right near the upper school at Harvard Westlake. Right. So it was a staple at, at, at games, whether it be after big, you know, high profile football games or basketball games, the line out the door. And the one thing we figured out was they would do pickup orders right away. So there'd be a line out the door, the, 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 the flat ramp that would curve around. So it'd be in, into the parking lot. So we would go in and actually use the payphone on the other end and call an order in for pickup. And wait 10 minutes and then just so the line would be like 30 minutes long and we would just only have to wait 10 because we would call from the payphone in Carney's for a pickup order. So that was our way to sort of circumvent the rules that we enjoyed doing. But it was awesome. Like, you know, senior year, whatever, lunch, lunch breaks, you go down to Carney's. And then I, the one I usually hit is the one on Sunset in West Hollywood area and seeing friends and things along those lines. And it's the best. It's the best burger I have. So not the best meal, but that's definitely like an argument I will fight anyone on. The burgers at Carney's for sure. And what's your favorite place in LA? Wow. Well, I mean, there's home. So going home is great. Uh, yeah. Outside of home, I would say, I think just going to the beach, but dry. I take I like to take sunset all the way down. So I grew up in the Los Feliz neighborhood. So I just take sunset all the way and then going through it. There's so, so many memories of just high school because all my friends, most of my friends live on the West side. So just driving through Sunset, going through West Hollywood, going through Beverly Hills, Brentwood, then the Palisades. I think that drive and then the beach, so to speak, is definitely something that just like is always feels like home whenever I go through it. Last question. I am the parent of two little girls. I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and I know you are not a parent, but the last question that I ask is about parenting advice. And I wonder if you 
in helping to instruct me about my little girls can think about maybe back to your own parents and things that they imparted to you that may help to be instructive to me uh, with my little ones. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some kernels I could offer, <laughs> but anyone who is actually a parent, certainly much more qualified to speak on the topic. But things that resonated with me, I would say, you know, someone who came from a big family, you know, expose your kids to everything and then just see what takes. Like, you know, early on, the piano lessons just weren't taken with me. Like it wasn't happening, you know, like I just, you know, to this day, I can't read music. I can't do anything. Now, obviously, I think if I had certain maturity or whatever, age 10 or whatever, maybe it'd be cool to know certain things, but it just wasn't happening. Like sports, I wanted to read the back of the sports page and read the box scores. So, you know, I think your job as a parent is to expose them to everything, but then see what takes and then obviously provide opportunity for them to explore those interests and things along those lines. But I mean, I reflect on my upbringing so much, you know, thinking like, how did I get to this place? How did, you know, because people ask, I've done podcasts or whatever. It's like, I mean, we just summarized my career of over two decades, man, it was, it was bumpy, right? Nobody has a straight line. There's a lot of peaks and valleys and there's self-doubt. Like I said earlier, um, I will say the, the drive comes from like a competitive environment, like Harvard Westlake and things like that. I mean, I think you are going to be pushed by your surroundings and that's what I've I appreciated so much about the Harvard Westlake experience. And there's so many people with different skill sets and different interests and different everything. So you just sort of learn and observe people do their own sort of approach on things. And you, and you just, I learned so much from others and I learned in the classroom, don't get me wrong, but like so much from just going to school with people that were, I don't want to say just successful, but just so different and eager and about life and really, and ultimately became accomplished. And there was always like sort of somewhat something to strive for. And that was, you know, pushed obviously at home, but by my peers as well. And I think that comes with, you know, sort of having your, you know, exposing your kids to opportunity and seeing what takes. And I was fortunate enough that I had a stable foundation at home, but then I was able to go do my own path. Yeah. I bet having, uh, being the youngest and seeing how your siblings all grew up in the same house, but all ended up doing different things. Right. Kind of lends to that notion that people are going to find their own path, even if their circumstances or their upbringing was the same, they're going to find their own path. Spot on. No, I mean, that's what it is. That's why I said my mom jokes. She's like, I raised five only children um, <laughs> because we, I mean, we were three or four years apart. So there was a little bit of a gap. It wasn't like one or two years, but there's some similarities for sure. Right. But for the most part, we're all like so different, but we were also supportive and, you know, of each other and things like that. So we're, we're fiercely competitive in some ways, but obviously not at the expense of one another. And we're very into you know, our own individuals, so to speak. And I mean, now, of course we are, but I'm just saying when we were growing up, you know, we did similar stuff. Like, like I said, we, we all played the same little league and things like that, but it didn't take for everyone. Sports were different for each of us. Um, and it became like, you know, my career and it didn't, wasn't, the, that's not the case for any of my other brothers. Well, Doug Kazarian, thank you so much for joining the supporting cast and good luck with your, uh, any upcoming bets. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I uh, don't know if I'm worthy of being a guest on the pod with uh, <laughs> some of the other guests you've had, but it was certainly an honor. 